Welcome to another episode of Stories That Inspire. I'm Daniel Herrera. I'm here with my co-founders, Sandy Lam and Jerome Fromau. We are the co-founders of Project 100, which is an initiative to help other people discover their purpose and live aligned to it. And we are very excited to have this time inspiring young uh, person that we have had the pleasure to meet recently and over the years. We have seen his path through becoming a young leader. So uh, his name is Ishan Shah. He's from London in the UK. He's a 20 year old uh, an international rights, gender equality and climate action young leader. And I'm very happy to have him. So welcome Ishan. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, so as you know, uh, Stories That Inspire is about sharing stories from other purpose-driven uh, people that we think are valuable to our audience and anyone that wants to listen to stories from people around the world that have a purpose-led passion, right? So I had the pleasure to meet and have a, a lunch with uh, Ishan recently. And, and the conversation that uh, I was most interested about is about his recent uh, experience in the UN, in the UN uh, offices in New York. So I want to lead with that. So Ishan, uh, I want to I wanna hear from what have you learned from that experience? What do you think is going to help with your different initiatives? Because I know that you have different ways to, to help people with the different things that you, you started three, four years ago. Yeah, so I was at the UN in New York for the Commission on the Stage of Women for the 67th session. And the Commission on the Stage of Women is essentially the largest intergovernmental gathering to advance gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls um, across the UN system, but also across the world. And it happens every year, and every year there's a different theme. And this year's theme was um, technology, digital uh, innovation, and education in the digital age. So it's, it's a very important theme, um, particularly with the rise of AI, as we're seeing now at the moment, um, with the rise of the digital space, with technology rapidly evolving. Um, and this commission was focusing on what is the gendered impact? What is the impact on women and girls and all their diversity and intersectional identities? Um, and I was very fortunate to be there in New York um, as part of the UK's government delegation. So I was in the room negotiating on the, the resolution that was going to be the outcome of the commission, which we call the Agreed Conclusions. Um, and really, it was a, a very intense experience being, you know, one of the youngest person, you know, one of the youngest people in the room, I think it was myself, I was 19 at the time, turned 20 recently, um, but myself and the youngest was uh, one of the youth delegates from the US and she was 18 years old. Um, and essentially it was predominantly just a, a very few number of us youth in the room um, who, were, who were sitting there and who were trying to influence the text to make sure that the language of the resolution was as inclusive and as concrete and bold as possible to make sure that member states were were really, you know, ensuring that the commitments uh, were, were progressive rather than regressive. But what we continue to see in the UN space is that it is a member state driven process and member states do have very differing opinions, especially when it comes to a contentious issue like gender equality, uh, particularly around language on inclusivity. So around LGBTQIA plus persons, for example, um, on people who face multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination, on women human rights defenders, on girls leadership even, um, and we were seeing that in the room that there was this very much split between the more progressive states and the states that were more aggressive as well. Um, and really being in that space was, as I mentioned, quite intense. You know, sitting in a room for 15 hours at a time is not very fun, um, especially at such a young age, um, having to listen so attentively as well. 
but also recognizing that that room was only for member states. And if you were only part of a member state delegation, could you then have access to the room? So actually outside the room, so literally outside the doors, there were two, a couple of sofas outside. And that's where the rest of the civil society and, and my fellow colleagues and young people were sitting. Um, and it was really important for us in the room that we were sharing the information, what was happening inside the room to those outside the room. And I think really being in the UN, um, and I've been in the UN space for a while now, but I think being there in New York um, and being in the government, intergovernmental negotiations itself, just reminded me the importance of localization, of what, of bringing what's happening at the international level to the grassroots level. And that's where the change really happens, right? In our communities, in the spaces we occupy on the ground, you know, even within our home, within our schools and universities and the spaces, those immediate spaces that we occupy in the workplace as well. Um, and that's what it essentially really taught me is that at this international level, there is so much dispute and so much contestation, so much bureaucracy. We know that the UN is a very clunky organization. We know that it's got lots of structural and systemic limitations. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, take what's being churned out at the UN level and bring it to the grassroots level, which is where the change really happens. Um, and what we see is at the local level, it's much more inclusive. It's much more diverse. It's much more exciting, um, you know, to see young people leading the, the changes at the front lines at the grassroots level. And, you know, in the space that we occupy at a UN level, which is very much a privilege, you know, the fact that we get to engage with our government, we work with young people who can't access the government for, you know, a whole host of political reasons, um, for fear of their lives, for fear of um, their livelihoods, for the, you know, fear of their, having their homes destroyed or, or being imprisoned. So we really make it clear that when we are occupying these positions at a UN level with governments, that it's not just the voice of the UK youth that we're bringing or the privileged few, but we're bringing in all those voices into the room. Um, you know, from the global south, and I'm generalizing here, but from all those communities that have historically been barred from such spaces. I I, I hear you, and as you can listen, uh, Ishan is very well versed. So it's a pleasure to to listen to all the things that you have to say. Uh, from well, I heard many things that I want to lead on, but uh, because you you talk about what the topics were in the conversation, and yeah, th there were some trendy things like AI and all the revolutionary things that are happening right now. But I want to focus on something that has been timeless over generations and is the impact of youth, no? Mm. So you are a young leader. You have been a, an inspiration for many, including me and or, or I think us. And, and it's wonderful to see how other young leaders as yourself have been a representation of what the future can be with, with leaders like, uh, like all of you. Uh, and yeah, I want to I want to hear more about other young leaders like yourself, and what do you think uh, that generation is gonna bring to the make to the decisions that need to be made for improving everyone's world? Yeah, so I think that you know youth leadership is is a huge part of of decision making processes at the moment. I think you know young people hold a lot of potential in terms of what we bring to the table. Um, yes, we're young. Yes, we haven't had as much experience as, as people who are already in these spaces. Um, but we're willing to learn and we're willing to unlearn, you know, and that's that's what's really important is this intergenerational nature um, of, of youth leadership and in decision making processes. Um, unfortunately, what we continue to see is that young people are only seen as beneficiaries. We're not seen as partners or co-leaders at the table. And that needs to change. You know, we are, you know, told that, you know, we're doing great things, but we're not then included in the spaces where decisions are actually being made that are affecting not only our future, but also our present context too. And we can see that in all this discourse on climate change in particular, where, you know, the climate change isn't an issue that's happening in, in you know, a year or two's time, but it's happening right now and young people are facing the impacts um, at the moment. 
it's also quite refreshing to have a young person at the table. You know, we're coming with innovative ideas, with with a different understanding, um, and sometimes our lack of experience or our lack of knowledge can actually lead to innovative ideas um, in in some contexts. Um, so we really need to look at how what youth leadership means. It's a word that we throw around a lot. Um, you know, within the youth constituencies, we know what it means. We know it means. Yeah, you know, involving us from processes from drafting all the way through implementation and monitoring. But it's about building young people's capacity about how we can engage with decision makers, but also building the capacity of those in decision making spaces on how they can engage with young people too. So it works both ways. And one of the things that we always say is that it all comes down to power dynamics at the end of the day. A young person is seen as inferior to those who are already in these spaces, to the academics, to the experts, or the so-called experts at least, or to the people who have had, you know, 15 plus years of experience in the space. And that means that when you're in a room, you're often dismissed very quickly as a young person. Um, and that's why we need to shift that narrative. We need to shift the power dynamics and look at models of co-leadership um, and co-creation and co-ownership. And, and all of this has been very much familiar discourse in the spaces that we occupy um, and it was actually in 2021 that um, myself um, and colleagues and, and friends and fellow activists in the UN Women Youth Network, um, we authored the Young Feminist Manifesto, which is this beautiful document um, that it sort of outlines what leadership, what co-leadership should look like and how to take a feminist approach as well. And, and feminist in the sense that not just looking at how women and girls can be involved in the conversation, but feminist in the sense, how do we look at power dynamics? How do we look at decolonial approaches? How do we look at transformative leadership? All of these historic and systemic factors that have barred not only young people's participation, but people from diverse backgrounds as well from engaging in formal processes when it comes to decision making. Um, and how can that be implemented not only at the international level with governments and member states, but at the local level, in local decision making processes, in, in the corporate world as well, in, in sort of boardroom contexts, um, and also in organisational structures too. How can young people be seen again, not only as beneficiaries of change, but as valued partners and co-leaders at the table? Ishan, you're probably the person in the world that's 20 years old with the longest LinkedIn profile I've ever seen. <laughs> and we've all met you before in one way or other capacity uh, over the last couple of years. You've featured in different podcasts, in different events that we've all uh, shared. But to all our listeners... Where did it start? You're only 20, just 20 years old. You have more than 18 relevant work experiences on your LinkedIn profile. Where did it start and why did it start there? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I remember talking to Sandy about this the last time we spoke actually about, you know, where, where it started. Um, I think I've been very fortunate to have an upbringing um, in, in the background of the faith Jainism, which is, uh, you know, a very small religion that originates in India. But it's, you know, the fundamental values of Jainism is, is selflessness, service to others, um, giving back to others, recognizing your own privilege and the resources you have and using that to be a force for good. Um, also built on the pillar of nonviolence, which is um, something that Mahatma Gandhi is, is very famous for, for taking forward that principle of ahimsa, which is the Sanskrit word for nonviolence. Um, so, you know, from a very young age with my parents and grandparents and particularly my grandparents, actually, that's what we were always taught was selflessness and service to others. Something as simple as, you know, when you get given food or when you're offering, you know, when you're having a meal, for example, you offer other people food first before you take it yourself. Um, and I think that sort of those values of selflessness have just been intrinsically fed into my life since the very beginning or sewn into my life since the very beginning. Um, 
you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be a marine biologist. So I was not involved in the human rights space at all. But, you know, my appreciation for, for nature came as well from Jainism as well. Um, and so that's where my journey started in terms of, you know, conservation and, and in particular marine life. And I was obsessed um, with, with, with that sort of thing. And it was only until I was 13, which is when I found out that modern slavery and human trafficking existed. Um, but that was sort of um, as a result of me going to India when I was 11. Um, and we went to North India to a city called Ahmedabad, um, where I had seen, uh, you know, children who were essentially vulnerable to or had survived uh, modern slavery, human trafficking, um, child marriage as well. Um, and forced marriage and you know reading about mass poverty online is one thing and seeing pictures but being there in person and seeing the difference between the life that we're living here in the UK and what's happening across the world is is something you know something that I, I've never been able to unsee and it's about something that's never sat right with me in terms of the fact that you know I have three meals a day I have a family I have an education I have access to um, clothing even something as simple as that um, to, to sanitation, to fresh, clean water. Um, and there is a child just like me somewhere else in the world who doesn't have access to that. So coming back to the UK after that first trip to India, um, and again, then when I was 13, finding out that modern state of human trafficking existed, I couldn't sit there and not do anything. You know, that did that. I just couldn't. That did not sit right with me. Um, and then I was thinking, well, okay, modern slavery is such a huge issue, so systemically ingrained. It's something that's you know been happening over centuries. How can I, as a 13-year-old at the time, take action? And essentially, it was me contextualizing my privilege and the resources I had. And at the time, you know, at school, we were doing a research project. And I thought, you know, this is a perfect opportunity for me to do something, um, you know, more, something with, with more of an impact. Um, and that's where my advocacy started. And that's where the shift from marine life to human rights occurred. Um, and why I still hold marine life very dear to my heart Um you know, human rights is, is the focus at, at the moment. And, you know, maybe one day in the future, um, I'll go back to marine life. But it all intersects. Um, you know, we're seeing that ocean conservation and, and sort of supply chains of seafood, for example, um, very much intersect with human rights abuses. Um, but yeah, essentially, that's where it all started, um, was those values that I owe, you know, I look to my grandparents and parents for, you know, really instilling those into my life. And, that is just the thought process that I have now with, with anything I do in terms of, um, you know, with my family, even with my friends, it's always, what can I do? How can I be of service? Um, and, you know, really keeping selflessness at the forefront of my mind while also taking care of myself too along the way, um, you know, with the, the mental health side of things. That That's wonderful to hear. And I, I, I'm so aligned with that. Uh, I, I think that the purpose piece of this is that, yeah, you you grew up with a, with a family that, gave you or taught you values that are very uh, service driven and then you realize how they useful or how impactful they are for people around the world and then you took action no? so that's that's a very good uh, path for 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 people because other people I, I I'm just picturing you no know, like they are taught to be certain way but they never see a way to to take action and they then eventually they change their their mind or the way they were thinking or their values Uh, and it's wonderful to see that for some people it makes sense along the way and, and we can actually make something, uh, make a difference for others. Well, I, I do have a follow-up question on that, actually, because you talked about like how you, like how inspired you are when you serve others. But I wonder like what, what are the feelings do you actually have when you're able to do that? that that's, that's a very good question. Um, I think for me, it's 
it's a difficult it's a fine line because also you have this sort of savior complex as well in terms of you, you don't want to be like the, the privileged person who then has you know access to the resources and then just essentially just keeps giving and giving and giving um you know for us it's about or for me it's, it's about you know how can i recognize that i live a life of privilege as as a man as well living a, a, in a patriarchal world that's built by men for men but how can i use that privilege and resources to dismantle the systems and the root causes that enable these vulnerabilities this marginalization these violence that i benefit from at the expense of others as as a man um as as a man born in in the uk you know having the uk nationality is, is a huge bonus when it comes to sort of uh you know the world that we live in in terms of nationalities um you know even my accent that i have as well again it's, it's a huge um sort of uh, privilege in, in itself but i think the feeling of selflessness and, and giving to others is just about recognizing that you know i need to dismantle these systems and i have the tools to do so and you know it's it's, it's gratifying it's humbling to to do so um, and it just and it grounds me, I guess, and it reminds me every time I give back. It reminds me of how much I really have, um, and how fortunate I am to be living the life I do. That's what keeps me in this space is is you know the hope, I guess. Um, and again, meeting incredible young people who are doing you know incredible things at you know no, no matter how big or small um, in their own spaces is really a humbling experience. But also when you know when you're giving someone the tools to then take take their project forward in their community and then seeing them flourish and seeing them create an even more or even bigger impact and seeing how that ripple effect works is, is so powerful in itself. I completely agree with that. I have a question that is uh, ringing in my head. So when you talk about these privileges, no, like again, just being a person in the UK and being a man and your accent you said, but uh, I want to go back to your experience when you were in, the, in, in New York and you were saying that you were one of the few, if not the only young person, no? Do you think that all the other things that are st stereotypically or minority uh, people, do, do you think they, they stack, no? Like you are a young person, a man, um, I don't know, Indian uh, uh, ascendance and things like that. Do, do you think they, they stack? Or do you think that they you, just, you are just seen as a young person and that's the only frame that they are seeing you through yeah i think and it's important to make a distinction here as well is that you know when when i'm talking you know at, at, in in my own individual capacity with decision makers that's my identity behind me that's my essentially my lived experience right being being a, a brown person an indian uh, from a british indian in the uk yeah of course i've had my fair share of um you know racial abuse and, and challenges when I was growing up and, and a lot of um, internal conflict as well as a result of that. And that's essentially my lived experience. But then when you're in a position of, of privilege in a decision-making space at a table, for example, so let's take this this whole um, experience in New York at the UN, is that when you're in the room, you have to detach yourself from your identity because you know being in that seat is very much a privilege and you are there as a mouthpiece for the however many thousands of young people are feeding into that whole process and i think that's what was very important to me being in that room and it's something i made very clear to the the uk delegation as well was that i'm not here representing my own views i'm not here just representing you know stolen dreams and the anti-modern slavery and anti-human trafficking agenda but actually there are over three thousand young people who have contributed to 
Um, we did this global youth recommendations um, that we pulled together. I told them there's over 3,000 young people from across the world who have contributed to this process. I have the document open in front of me and this is what I'm using. Um, I'm not gonna uh, waste this opportunity um, or, or only be a mouthpiece for the privileged few who are able to engage with the UN, who know what the Commission on the Status of Women is, um, and who have the ability to to travel, whether it's for financial reasons or visa reasons as well. Wonderful, yeah. You you just reminded me of something that I actually give advice to people when they are worried about giving a uh, a speech or something, and I say, don't think about it's a don't think that it's about you. It's about what you are saying to help others or to represent the voice of others. So that's exactly what you that you are doing, and that's wonderful. Uh, I, I have another question, really quick one. So. I, we see and you recognize your position and, and the privilege or the opportunity that you have to represent other young people, but you probably have seen other young people, uh, either friends or, or people you know, that they also have a big passion on, on making change or to live up to their standards and values and what they believe. But at certain point, they don't know when, where to start or how to start or, or how to keep the motivation up. You know? so, I would like to ask you for advice to jo those young uh, people that are might be listening. What what do you give uh, give them as an advice to keep uh, working on their beliefs and the things they want they want to change? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think being in the youth activism space can often seem like a competition. You know, who's got more followers or who gets more engagement on social media or who gets to speak at this event and that event. Um, and that's really not what youth activism is. And unfortunately, that's the reality is that there are young people who do this because then they get some sort of degree of fame or they get, you know, free gifts or, or free travel or whatever it may be. Um, you know, but the root of activism is essentially just doing good at whatever level. It can be at the local grassroots level or something as small as um, having a conversation with your family about dismantling the, the gender stereotypes that they hold or the internalized homophobia that they may hold, for example. I mean, that's what activism is because at the end of the day, if individuals don't change, then society will not change because society, you know, is, is a collective of individuals, I guess. And, you know, we, we have to see that individual transformation to then see societal transformation too. So that's the first thing is that, you know, to any young person who wants to do something in the world that's think small you know think small act big as i think is the it's a saying that is often thrown around is essentially that's where change starts um you know even within yourself educating yourself learning unlearning and subsequently growing um is, is so crucial and for those young people who do have access to decision makers whether you know your your parents are in government or your parents are in, in some sort of corporate firm and they have the fact you know talk to them engage with them in that way Um, there's this a plethora of ways to to be an activist um, and to advocate for change. Um, you just have to find your niche, find the issue that you're most passionate about, or the the thing in the world that frustrates you most or boils your blood, um, and channel that determination and that passion and the anger and whatever emotions you're feeling um, into action. And and again, it it doesn't have to be something big. It can really be at that very grassroots level. And, and, you know, once you once you see that change or I mean, I would say persevere until you do see that change, because, you know, you've got to keep pestering, uh, keep advocating, um, you know, to, to get the, the change that you wish to see. Um, but once you do get that change, you know, shout about it from the rooftops, tell other young people, this is what I've done. Um, you know, this is how I did it. This is what works best. I tried this, but it didn't work. Um, and that's the beauty of youth activism as much as it can be a, a bit of a toxic space at times. It is a beautiful community of young people who are exchanging knowledge, who are sharing information, who are telling each other, you know, this is the best practices. These are the worst practices. 
um, and it is really a community of, of change makers who, you know, we're not going to lead the future because we're already leading the, the change now at the moment. Um, it's just a matter of time before we take over uh, and, you know, fix things the way they're supposed to be. Ishan, all the the work that you do, the conversations that you have next to your studies and now also doing your internship and uh, it will be no surprise to people that there is only one life that you live. So it's all interrelated. It can take a lot of energy and you probably use all the time that you have to invest in that. What do you do to offload? How do you inspire yourself? Where do you find, where do you recharge your batteries? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I do love a, a good nap. Um, <laughs> uh, my bed is my best friend at the moment. I can try to get as much sleep as I can whenever I can get it. Um, but no, just like, you know, spending time with my family. Um, you know, my friends are absolutely incredible. They're always checking up on me. Um, uh, you know, they're always telling me, Ishan, you know, we've noticed that you have, you know, not been taking care of yourself, you need to stop, you need to slow down. Um, and I really appreciate that because, you know, sometimes there's so much to do and there's so much you want to that we just get so preoccupied um, and everything is so fast paced these days um, that we forget to check in on ourselves um, as well. So, you know, spending time with my friends, going outside for, even just going outside for a walk, because I often find that I just sit at my desk for hours on end, just staring into a screen, um, typing away. Um, and you just get so carried off into your own world um, that you forget to reconnect with nature, to, to, to go outside, to take a breath of some fresh air. Um, but, you know, I, I just enjoy spending time with, with those people who have really been there for me, who have been there for me at the worst of times when they've seen me, you know, curled up in a ball crying in the corner, um, but at the best of times and, and who have celebrated me when I have had those um, successes as well um, throughout my activist journey. But, you know, just really just finding what brings me joy in terms of the simple things like going to a museum, for example, immersing myself in some culture, um, you know, watching some comedy shows on Netflix um, that would just make me laugh um, is, is much needed at times. Um, indulging in my favorite foods, you know, Oreo milkshakes and popcorn is, is a thing these days for me. Um, but just the, just reconnecting with the things in life that, that bring you joy, I guess, um, because it's very easy to to be in this space and, and be demoralized, especially in current contexts where you know, you're bombarded by news that is that is very depressing um, in, in the current political and, and economic state, uh, economic sort of context, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's finding the things that bring hope. And, and again, that's an amazing thing about being in this youth activist community is that you know, when we, when each of us, um, and my activist friends, at least, you know, we're all doing such different things in the gender space, climate space, human rights space, peace and security. Um, you know, we'll always share our successes with each other and we'll celebrate each other. Um, and we'll be there to support each other unconditionally. Um, we have a group chats on Instagram, um, that we just share memes. It's just for memes only, um, you know, no activist talk. Um, and, and, you know, it's just having those spaces where you can take a breath of fresh air, um, re-energize, recuperate, recover, um, so that you're ready to go out and fight the good fight um, to the best of your ability. Great to hear that you are a normal person as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I find it very interesting that the stuff that you're doing is so big of an impact, but the things that powers you are almost the things that we often take for granted every day. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And it's about reconnecting with those, you know, small things and they may seem insignificant, but actually without them, I would not be, yeah, I wouldn't be surviving right now. 
just if you look at, let's say, some of the current initiatives you're working on, and you, you shared already a little bit your experiences with working with the United Nations and visiting them and uh, the groups you're working there also with the other youth activists. What is one of your key messages that you have now always, I would almost say on the tip of your tongue, something that you can't stop talking about these days and probably next week there's something else? But uh, what is one of your key messages uh, to the world, to your fellow youth citizens around uh, the globe that you des desperately want to share with them? Yeah, I mean, I just keep telling myself to keep being constructively, constructively disruptive. I think that's in, in any space I occupy is, is that's what, you know, is, is always on the tip of my tongue is what can I say or what can I do that uh, is constructively disruptive in the sense that I'm not... Um, I, I I'm not being so disruptive to the sense to the to the point where I get sort of written off or, or blacklisted or neglected. Um, but how can I how can I in, in any of the spaces I occupy or any of the people I talk to, how can I then open that space up to X number of more young people to come into the space and to share their expertise too? Because I'm just one voice, one voice with with one particular experience and one particular life. But there are many many more who need to come into the space and need to share their perspectives too. Um, so essentially, that that's what's always on the tip of my tongue, and that's the message I always give: is that you know, one is bring young people into the space first. But you know, the young people that do enter that space, how can you open that space to more young people? Um, you know, because I'm not going to be a young for a young person forever. I need to keep opening that space, keep bringing fresh perspectives in, into the space too. Um, you know, when you're in a movement, and you know whether it's the anti-slavery movement or the gender movement for so long, you know you become so familiar with the way things work that then you get caught up in that jargon or the or the way that this, the the system works, and you need to have those fresh voices in to to disrupt the system essentially. Um, but again, in a constructive manner, you know, recognizing how, you know, we we have limits. You know, whether it's in the policy space, you know, governments have their own views and, and systemic issues, or advocacy space. We know that organizations have been around for, you know, hundreds of years, and they have been working their own ways. Um, so how do we slowly, um, but but sort of incrementally, I guess, get that change and, and see that that structural shift? Um, but, but essentially, it's all about opening space and, and keep getting more diverse and inclusive voices, um, especially those who have been historically marginalized and excluded um, into the room at the table. Can you give an example of one of your last constructive, disruptive uh, interventions that, you, that you've made that you can share with us and the listeners? Yeah, I mean, um, we recently, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Slavery is doing a report to the General Assembly on uh, the links between contemporary forms of slavery um, and technology. So how technology can use to per perpetrate and prevent um, contemporary slavery. Um, and he sort of said that, you know, he reached out to us and he said, you know, Stolen Dreams, um, you know, we'd love Stolen Dreams to contribute to the report. Um, and we said, OK, great. And then I said to him um, and, and it's uh, Tommy, he's a great he's a great person, a great special reporter. And I said to him, you know, Stolen Dreams can contribute, but, you know, we will have a Zoom call and we're going to bring in we're going to advertise it online. We're going to just message as many young people from across the world who are in the space and young people who are interested in the space to, to come onto the Zoom call and give you recommendations. You know, we don't want to be the organization leading on it. Um, and he said, yeah, sure. So we opened a Zoom call one day. We brought in so many young people. We then compiled what all those young people were saying onto a Google document. We sent that Google document out to many more young people. And I think we got about, you know, over 70 young people from across the world who are really leading the anti-trafficking movement, you know, on the ground, at the grassroots level, on the front lines who have contributed to the report. And fingers crossed, hopefully, when the report is published and presented to the General Assembly and in September, October time, 
you know, there will be a section on, on young people, on youth, and a lot of our recommendations will hopefully be integrated across that. Um, and that, again, was just a, a way in which we work in terms of bridging what's happening at the grassroots level to the international level. Um, and that's what we're going to keep doing is, is bridging that um, divide, I guess. Beautiful story. Thank you. I do have a question, but I don't know how to ask. I'll just say it. Like, I just wonder, like, because it seems like you're going to, like, you're so motivated on doing this. I just wonder if you will see yourself stop in one day. And if so, like, what would be that point? That, that's a good question, too. I, you know, I get this question a lot recently is, you know, what do you want to do once you graduate university? Uh, and the honest answer is I have no idea. I think, you know, my heart is obviously in, in this space, is, is particularly in the, in the anti-slavery, anti-trafficking space. Um, you know, I, and I've always said that I've really committed to a lifetime of this because I don't see myself doing anything other than something that contributes towards ending modern slavery and human trafficking because I just don't think I'll be able to live with myself or it doesn't sit right with me to just suddenly drop everything. So I hope I don't stop. Um, I don't know what would make me stop, um, but I really want to to keep going. I, you know, I think I, I have that motivation, I guess, um, to, to keep on going, you know, as you said, um, you know, and, and I get to meet, you know, so many incredible people in this space, um, you know, from young people and, and you know, academics and, and the data scientists um, and survivors as well. Um, and I think just hearing the stories that are coming out from the ground and, and having the lived experience too is something that, um, you know, really pushes me to, to keep going. And, and yeah, I, I don't see myself stopping anytime soon. Um, and I apologize to all the decision makers and, and the people I, I engage with every day who uh, are probably going to listen to this and be like, oh gosh, here he goes, he's going to be a lifetime of this. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, as, as we often say in the sector, you know, we're in it to end it. Can I ask a question that's related to that? Because, of course, you are in a, always in the movement in order to to challenge, to challenge the decision makers, to uh, challenge the reality, uh, and all those realities uh, are not always for granted why they are there. It's nice to always challenge the decision makers, but what if Ishan Shah ever is in a position that he becomes a decision maker? What's happening there? That's a good question too. I mean, I would, I would, I would essentially adopt the same practices that I that I was doing now in terms of what what we are asking for decision make from decision makers is to bring in young people to be um sort of just to make sure there's no power dynamics to make sure the spaces that you know when you're engaging young people are safe and that they feel comfortable. Um, but the one thing I would hope most is that just as I'm holding decision makers accountable, if I'm ever in a decision making space, and I am in decision making spaces now, is that I want to be held accountable too. You know, I want people to tell me that, you know, you're doing this wrong, or this is how you can do it better, or to call me out. Um, and that's essentially what we practice amongst youth as well within our own constituency and the spaces we occupy is that we're always holding each other accountable. If we say things that, you know, are, are sort of, that might be wrong, um, or we, we do things that, could have done be done better you know it's, it's very important to us that we are told straight away and that next time it happens we change and we grow and we learn from that it's not about failing it's not about doing things wrong and making a mistake and feeling embarrassed or you know suddenly switching off and, and removing yourself from those spaces but it's a it's essentially about learning and that's what we're asking from decision makers and that's what you know i would hope you know even in the spaces that i occupy and the positions that i hold that young people feel comfortable not only young people but anybody feels comfortable with telling me this is what you could be doing better 
um, because accountability should be something that is common practice. It's something that has a stigma around it, but I think it's something that we need to break that the stigma around too, and and as soon as possible. Is there any plan that you want to become a decision maker at all? Well, I mean, looking at the decision makers now, their jobs are quite hard, so <laughs> not not anytime soon. Um, but I think, you know, we'll continue to disrupt the system, and you know, we'll continue to engage with them and and try and get them to push. I mean, you look at these issues like modern slavery and human trafficking. Unfortunately, I don't think that we're going to see an end to it in in you know my, our lifetime and in, in my lifetime because these are very structural, systemic issues that require a lot of structural and systemic change that we, you know will take um uh, quite a long time. Um, but you know. That doesn't mean we stop, or doesn't mean we slow down our work. It it just means that we continue to push um, as hard as possible. Um, you know, I would hope that one day I do end up in decision making space. Um, you know, with my fellow youth activists and colleagues as well, because at the end of the day, it's it's you know essentially it's their power um, and and what they're doing on the ground now that is really driving the change. And we need to see them in in decision making spaces um, because. I think it would make the world a much better place. Not to sound cliche, but it really would if they were the ones calling the shots. I want to know if you think uh, you and your your colleagues, your the people you work with, are you hopeful of the future in the terms of all the challenges that we are encountering? Because yeah, there are things that we we can always achieve to improve. I don't know, like slavery and and and, and equi equality in, in all aspects of all ranges of people. But there's also the complexity of economic shift power and then global warming like that that puts a timer on all of those things and obviously it increases the the topic so are, are you and you and the people you talk to are, are you hopeful that we are gonna get to the place that we are thinking about that we, are, we can change yeah this this issue of hope is is something that I, you know, I battle with a lot, youth activists battle with it a lot too, you know, in current context, we know climate change, the rate that we're going is, is going to get worse in terms of the situation. Conflicts are breaking out in Sudan, Afghanistan, in Ukraine. Um, the rates of exploitation are increasing and modern state are increasing as a result of COVID-19, as a result of climate change, as a result of conflict. Um, you know, as I mentioned, these are very systemic and structural issues that I don't think we're going to see an end to in, in my lifetime. Um, and at times that is quite depressing. Um, it's it's quite sad. Um, and, you know, I, I go through those emotions of, you know, of, of hope and then of, you know, of, of you know, uh, of sadness, um, of frustration, of anger. But I mean, again, we have to hold on to that hope that things will change. But it's it's not about it's not just about feeling that hope. It's about doing something about it and actually acting. And I think that's what we've essentially committed to is that regardless of the outcome you know we will we will fight until our very last breath to to ensure that you know we've done the best we can to safeguard our our current contact to safeguard our future but also of the generations to come and i think that's what's most important is that as much as we are bombarded with um you know headlines about how climate change is getting worse and how it's irreversible now or about how you know conflicts breaking out and when exploitation is increasing it doesn't mean that we should just stop and give up and you know retire on some island and just enjoy the rest of our days but it, you know we have to we have to fight and we have to keep doing so and that's what we have committed to yeah and, and that's what i was hoping to hear you know like i think i have heard from many people that on the internet and the world you can see whatever angle you want to see you know if you want to see that the world is going worse you're gonna find a lot of that but if you see and look for the improvements uh, uh, inspiration and things that we are doing better than ever before, 
that's when you get hopeful, you know, and that's... It's also very easy just to switch off and just to ignore all these issues and to just live your life how you want to live it. Um, it's, It's another conversation to actually take action, to feel uncomfortable, which is what we're asking essentially is you have to feel uncomfortable. You have to challenge yourself um, because at the end of the day, you know, as much as we need the political and corporate world to act, if individuals are not on board as well, then um, we're not going to end up uh, anywhere. Um, so it's it's not taking the easy way out, but actually recognizing that, you know, we have to fight and we have to make some sacrifices um, to essentially safeguard our future. What is the what is the world that you're actually hoping for? Like maybe not in your lifetime, but like essentially, like what is that that you're hoping for? Yeah, that that's a good question too. I think, um, you know, I think it's around. I think I always look back to like the the UN Declaration um, on on human rights and the, the opening is that everyone should be born uh, free and equal in dignity and rights. Um, I think that's essentially what we want is is a world of equity. Um, of fairness, uh, of sustainability, you know, you can speak for hours about how that is actually going to come about and whether, you know, we can ever reach equity or gender parity and um, what the sort of economic situation would look like and, you know, capitalism and communism and all these different things come into the conversation. But essentially, I think it's just um, the the hope, the vision of having a world where, um, you know, every human being is born free and equal in dignity rights and where we're safeguarding our planet, where we're living in harmony with, with nature. Um, it's, it almost sounds like a fairy tale right now, but but essentially that's what we have to cling on to, right? That's the hope. I think it has been always a fairy tale, but if we see human history, we always can find the, the, the improvements and how we got, have got closer to that image little by little. Uh, I just want to Thank you again. I'm, I'm going to wrap up and, and ask you a final question. So for all our listeners and people that want to know more about you or get in contact with you, where can you where can they find you and get in contact? Yeah, so Stolen Dreams, uh, we have a website, which is stolendreams.co.uk. Um, you can reach out to me on Instagram and Twitter at Ishan Shah UK. It's I-S-H-A-A-N-S-H-A-H-U-K. Um, and yeah, my email address is ishan.shah at unmgcy.org reach out to me my inbox and my messages are always open um yeah always happy to support as much as possible that's what we're here for wonderful thank you we will put that on the show notes and again thank you shan thank you sandy thank, thank you, you so much for having me lovely to have you yeah i i wish the best for all our listeners and thank you for listening